0: Hi, this is Danielle Cursa from The Jealous Curator, and this is episode 186 of Art for Your Ear. Have you ever wanted to talk to one of the art world's greats? Someone whose work is everywhere from MoMA to Venice? Well, that is exactly what's happening today. I wrote about New York-based artist Peta Coyne a month or two ago, and the beautiful, poetic story she left as a comment on the piece of hers that I'd posted to Instagram. Remember that waxy chandelier complete with taxidermied peacock? Yep. Well, her comment was enough for me to drop everything, message her directly, and beg her to come on the podcast to tell us a whole bunch of poetic stories. She said yes, and I am so excited for you to hear everything this creative, clever, witty, wonderful woman has to share. Now, once again, we're just gonna jump into this episode mid-conversation because Peta and I spent the first 15 minutes or so talking about politics, (laughs) the weather, uh, and my kid's book. So I am just gonna jump over all of that and get right into Peta's story. Spoiler alert, this episode has been a life changer for me. I'm gonna explain more about that after the interview. That said, you're probably gonna be able to figure out why. PETA is inspiring, generous, and she's been making her own rules since she was a little kid. She is amazing. And this is the cold hard proof. Ready? Calling PETA coin in New York. We're starting now at the beginning. This is what I always like to do. You know this now because you've listened. I yes. want to know what you were like when you were a kid. Were you hoarding stuff? Were you drawing? Like, what were you like?
1: Well, um, you know, I came from a military background because oh. um, my dad was in the military and we traveled like everywhere. We went all over the world. In, in fact, we moved 15 times before I was even 12. So you can imagine always picking up, moving. And, but my parents made it really fun. Um, it, was, it was really great. They made it an adventure. And um, my parents also believed really a lot in education. They thought it was extremely important, but not like Harvard and Yale or anything. They, They didn't think school was so important, but they thought that if anything was happening anywhere in the world, wherever we were, They thought that we should be there because they wanted us to really see things and be excited about what that was so that we would get involved and then read about it and be really thrilled with the world. And so it was really wonderful that way. So we lived in Hawaii for the longest time. And I know you love to go to Hawaii. Oh, I do. And so we lived in Honolulu for four years, which was so heavy. It was my favorite favorite place to be and we never lived on the army basis my parents didn't want us to be army brats so um wherever we lived we lived in the neighborhood of whatever country it was like if we lived in germany we lived with the german people or france we lived in you know in the french neighborhoods wow Hawaii we lived in a Japanese neighborhood which was so great because they were so welcoming and i was very young and when when we were there the one of the most important things for me visually that happened was There was a huge, and I mean huge, whale that had come onto Waikiki Beach. And my mother went and got all three of us out of school. And she got lunches for us. And she said, We're going to the beach because you've got to see this whale. And we (laughs) did. We went to the beach and we stayed all day at the beach. And we looked at that whale. And she had paper for us and crayons. And we drew pictures of that whale. And she said, Now, look at that whale. He's really having a hard time breathing. He's very sick. And the Hawaiian men are getting nets around him so that during high tide, they'll try to get him to go back out into the ocean and go and find his other brothers and sisters. And she said, now look, look at all the marks on him. You can tell how old he is, by all the marks that he has on him. And she said, each mark is a story. And I want you to make up a story about that whale. Take a mark and look at it and make up a story. You can do a picture or you can make up a story. And I want you to make up a great story about his life at the bottom of the ocean. And I said, Mom, I don't know what it's like at the bottom of the ocean. And she said, yes, you do. You snorkel. You see all the fish. You see all the coral. You know what it's like. And I thought, well, yes, I do. And she said, this is the one time you can lie. When you make up stories or you make up pictures, you can lie. And I thought, oh oh this is wonderful i can lie oh my gosh this is so great and i don't have to go to confession i can lie so i thought okay this is so wonderful so i made up the most wonderful lies and i told her the most wonderful story about this whale and the mark that i chose and at dinner I told the best story, much, much, much better than my brother and sister. I was convinced. And my dad looked at me and he was laughing. And I was so pleased with myself. And my mom said, okay, those were wonderful stories by all of you. And after we do the dishes, I am going to tell you a story. We're going to read a book the beginning of a book of another man that wrote a wonderful story it's called Moby Dick it's by Herman Melville and I'm going to see what you think about his story about his whale and when she read us that book I was so deflated because his story was much much better than my story <laughs> and I realized that I had to do much better that I had to work harder and just work much, much harder to get to be as good as Mr. Melville. So that was kind of what my mother would always do. She would get us to do things, and then she would show us other things that were even better than ours. And then we would try to get up, raise that bar to get even better than what we had done. And she did that constantly with us throughout all these things. But that was the first time that I saw a visual and literature, great literature, and it kind of dovetailed for me. And How
0: old were you when that happened? Five. Oh my I was gosh. Five years old. That and is she, like that. You could write that down as a story. That
1: is amazing. Yeah. She was really, really good when we were young. She was wonderful. And and she would she taught us constantly like that. She would always, you know, she was ikabani master. And she told us always to go collect things, but collect things. this is where my hoarding, I'm sure, started, <laughs> you know, collect things, but not just anything. They had to be wonderful things, you know. You couldn't just find a pine cone or a piece of driftwood. It had to be magnificent driftwood. You had to really look at it. It had to be special driftwood and study it and then give it to her, you know, as a gift. And then she would put it in her Ichabana. And then we would look at her Ichabana and she'd want us to comment on it, but not until we saw all the different angles of it. And she would turn it around and we'd have to study it. And of course I would become a sculptor, you know, like, how could you not? Right. Yeah. And so. Are your brother and sister? My brother was a filmmaker oh, and, okay. and he was, just, uh, he saved all his money. He was in advertising and a really good at that, but he saved all his money and the, just ready to start his production company. He made a couple million dollars on his advertising, just ready to do that. And he got cancer and oh. just went down fast. And he was 46. Oh my gosh. He died. I'm so and sorry. And tragically, yeah, it was, it was the second brother that I had lost. And my sister, I think, was kind of overwhelmed by my brother and I, because we were very competitive with each other in a really good way. And um, she just, I think she would have been a great photographer. She had so much talent, but she just, just couldn't, she didn't have the drive. Tom and I both had this drive, um, and uh, she just didn't have it. Um, mm. And um, so she just she went into the sciences, and um, and kind of followed with my father. Hmm. And um, then I had a little brother who was um, more into um, he loved the the nature and all that sort of stuff. But he died of a massive heart attack at age forty six. My so goodness! He was my brother. So. Um, oh my word. Yes, but both my parents lived till just recently. They almost hit 100, both of them. Wow. Oh, my gosh.
0: So, well, what did your parents think of you and your art and your sculpture? I assume they were super supportive of it.
1: Very supportive of it. You know, very supportive of it. Even in high school, uh, when I didn't want to go to high school, um, because all I wanted to do was to make art. They they said you know well if you don't want to go to high school you because um, finally we we settled down in in Dayton Ohio and because um, they didn't they thought all the kids were getting weird from traveling and <laughs> so they put us in Dayton but still every summer they would take us somewhere you know to uh, you know, Southern France or Italy or somewhere. They didn't, they wanted us to continue uh, or an Amish farm or a ranch or somewhere. Um, but they said, if I didn't want to go to school, that I had to figure out a way that within the system to not go to school. And if I did, they would stand behind me. So, um, I, I went to the principal and said, I didn't want to go to school. How could I not go to school? (laughs) And um, he was like, well, yeah, you have to go to school. And I said, how about if I test out and then just do art? And he said, well, you can't do that. And I said, well, how about if I take all the tests in September and then I like go to just take art classes all afternoon or maybe go to the university And he said, well, your grades aren't that good. And I said, well, can't I do that? I won't, you know, I'm just either that or I'm gonna run away. And he said, oh God. And he said, okay, let me talk to your teachers. So we worked it out so that's what I could do. I could study in the summer and then I could take my test in September and then I could go to the art class and the university and that's what I could do. So, um, so. Um, that's what I did so for my junior uh, sophomore the end of my sophomore junior and senior year that's what I did I went to the um, local um, college and took painting and sculpture and I found a teacher who had gone to Cranbrook and he taught me how to do bronze casting and we did it at the local foundry and that sort of thing which was great oh so it was really wonderful because I was so bored with the classes at the, at the high school.
0: I love that. You're, you're like, I'm not going to follow these rules. <laughs> what a clever, I'm not going to tell my son this story. He was just moaning this morning about how he desperately didn't want to go to school. We will not let him listen to this episode. But <laughs> that is amazing. Oh my gosh. So did you get college credit for those classes?
1: um i i guess i could have i didn't even think of it i i went um i guess i had i guess i could have i didn't you know i didn't think of that um (laughs) i wish i had i guess i should have um i went to kent state for a year i didn't like it at all and um and then i went to the cincinnati art academy which was a good school i really learned to draw and paint and um but i didn't like the the sculpture professors. So, but I did try two professors. I really liked Cal Kowal and Tony Batchelor and they were in photography and printmaking. So I double majored, mm. but, um, it, it was, it was an okay school. It was great. Um, and I learned a lot. Um, but, um, when I came back to Dayton, I married my childhood sweetheart who I just adored and, um, and, um, we got married, and then, then I heard this panel, and that was part of the Dayton Beautiful Council. They were bringing artists in, and they were doing sculptures and stuff. And it was a panel by I don't know if you know these artists, but Alice Acock and Donna Dennis and Jody Pinto,
0: mm, and no. they were
1: talking about their their outdoor public artists. And they were talking about Jody Pinto was talking about these holes that she would dig, in in parking lots abandoned parking lots in Philadelphia and they were eight feet deep and she would put plastic at the bottom of them and red paint and they looked like these they they really did they looked like these horrible scenes of that had taken place maybe rapes down there or terrible violence right and in there in these awful abandoned parking lots and and then um, Alice Acock had made these low houses that you had to like almost climb in like gi joe you know you would climb mm-hmm. low like that and it was really earth like all you could smell was the earth and only one person could climb in at, at a time and you felt like you were being buried alive but it was comforting too in an odd sort of way and it's actually up at storm king permanently now these this house and you climb out, right? And Donna Dennis were building these, these one-third proportion, I hope I get this right, homes like, like those little houses you would go in on vacations where there one rooms. Mm-hmm. And they were really interesting. And all these artists were doing the most interesting projects and they were all women. There was one guy and I cannot remember his name. He would speak to the audience with his back turned and he would show these slides and all I knew were they were bridges in these woods. And occasionally he would scream like, boom, you know, and there were these, these explosions on the screen. And I had no idea what he was doing because I couldn't understand him, right? And then he would talk a little bit, mumble, and then he would say, boom, and there would be this next explosion. <laughs> it was It was very comical. And I don't know his... I don't remember his name, I'm sorry to say, but um it was very entertaining. But the all these artists I had never heard of during my years at Cincinnati, and I was so inspired and I thought I have got to go to New York. This is art that I've never heard of. I'm just so excited about it. And I was doing shows in Dayton, like at the bank and little galleries, and People would come, but at the bank I remember the people were kind of laughing at it and making fun of the work. And I was so depressed about it. And I thought, I'm not, I'm not staying here. So I went to Lamar, who was in graduate school, and I said, Lamar, listen, I know you want to go to graduate school and you finish. But what I gotta do is I have to go to New York and I'll find an apartment for us. And as soon as you're finished, you just come. And and I'll just find a home for us. I'll get a job and we'll, we'll meet there. And I'd been waiting to marry this guy since I was 13. Right. And, and he was like, you're not leaving me here. I am not staying. I really don't want to be in graduate school. Let's go together. And I was like, you really want to go? And he says, mm. well, I'm not sure, but let's go. And I said, great. So we sold everything we had and we put, piled everything else in my mom and dad's station wagon and we drove <laughs> it to New York and my brother had just finished Columbia and I was like, great, let's just surprise him and tell him we're moving in with him. <laughs> brothers love that. The brothers love that, right? <laughs> and he's like, wow you got all this stuff in the stage. I said, yeah, most of it are my plants. And I'm so excited to be here. And he's like, wow, great. You know, and he was such a sweet brother. So he said, well, you take my bed, I'll sleep downstairs. And, and so we stayed with them for like two months and we took back my parents' car. And, (laughs) and, um,
0: And so when you got there, were you, was there, Culture shock, or were you just so thrilled to be in New York? Like, did you? Was it? How did you feel? Was it scary or exciting or all of it?
1: Well, I was thrilled. You know, I felt like I was at home. The multiculture of the place, all the different ethnicities, ethnicities. You know, all the languages. This to me was home. You know, I felt at home because this is how I was raised. Yeah, Lamar, not so much. <laughs> Um, he, he was, you know, he, his family had been raised in Dayton, Ohio, and they'd gone to Michigan in the summer and Florida in the winter for all his life. And he, you know, the first time he saw Canal Street in Chinatown, you know, his, I wish you could have seen his face. He was in shock and he was like, oh my gosh. I think he was excited, but also shocked, you know, and so he was like, "Whoa!" And um, his parents were not thrilled with us. My parents were completely supportive; they they understood. But his parents were not so excited. But they'd never been excited about me either. So <laughs> <laughs> they
0: probably wanted you to be living next door and having babies, and
1: there you go, n- not leaving Dayton. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean when so, I, you go ahead
0: Well, I was just gonna say, so when you got there and like did what kind of a job did you get?
1: Well, the first day I got there, I knew it'd probably be the easiest for me to get a job. um lamar was Lamar was gonna look for a job in a bank. Um he was gonna look for a job in a savings and loan bank, and I figured that would take a little longer. And so I went right up to the Strand because that was a bookstore. And oh, I yeah. books. And so I went into the Strand and um, I introduced myself to the owner and I said, I was looking for a job and he said, they didn't have any. And I said, oh, but I'm from the Midwest. I'm the hardest worker you'll ever meet. And I'm sure you want to hire me. And he said, but we don't have any jobs. And I said, well, I'm just, you're missing a great thing here. You know, you just really should hire me. And he said, but I don't have any jobs. And I said, well, why don't I just sit down here and wait until you do have a job? (laughs) And he said, well, you can sit there all you want. I don't have a job. I said, okay, I'll just wait. So I sat down for like an hour and a half and he said, you know, you're just wasting your time. And I said, it's okay, it's my time to waste and I'll just wait here. So I waited three hours and f- and I just stared at him, you know, because he's <laughs> out in the open. And finally he looked up at me and he said, okay, come on Monday morning, tell that guy over there all your information and you got a job. And I said, thank you so much. You will not regret this. And he said, I have a feeling I'm going to regret this just plenty. <laughs> and so... <laughs> <laughs> so it was like 11 o'clock because they had opened at 8, I think it was. So I went over, gave the guy all my information. I thanked him again, and I left. And then I was going to go up to this place where they bought a print of mine. Um, yeah, because you were doing
0: it, photography, right?
1: I was doing photography yeah. and printmaking. Yeah. And, um, and of course, I was doing my sculpture, which I always loved, but nobody was buying my sculpture. So I went up to this place that had bought one of my prints and um, it was a advertising agency, a small one. And I introduced myself and I said, you know, I'm new in town, I just wanted to introduce myself. You bought one of my prints. And and they looked at me like, who are you? And I said, well, you bought one of my photographs. And I said, I just thought you'd want to meet me. And I began to feel like such an idiot and he and the guy the two owners of the company are looking at me, and they go well what did it look like and so i kind of described it they didn't know it from adam you know they didn't have it up i looked around their offices they took me around their offices they didn't have it up i said well i'm so sorry you know you purchased it and maybe you don't remember it and it was a year and a half ago and i said i'm so embarrassed and they were so nice and they said well listen, let us take you out to lunch. And I said, oh, that's so nice of you. I feel so embarrassed. They said, no, 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 don't be embarrassed. Come on. You know, let us take you out to lunch. You came all the way up here. Come on. So they were so nice and took me out to lunch. We had a, such a good time and we're talking and they're telling me all about their company and everything like that. And I'm telling them about my artwork and what why I came to the city. And she was an artist and why, how she got into the business. We had a lovely, they were so, so nice. And the lunch lasted like three hours. And so I left them and went on back to my loft, you know, where Tom was living. And I, I really was totally embarrassed. I thought, oh God, I'm so Midwestern, you know, <laughs> grief, you know. But by the time I got back there, they called me and they said, how much did The Strand offer you? And I said, oh, it's 150 a week. And they said, how about if we give you 160 a week and you come up and work for us? And I'm like, are you serious? And they said, yes, we need someone at the front desk and you're so friendly and so sweet, we'd like to offer you a job. And I said, well, great, because I could see that there could be possibly more possibilities there you know, advertising. And I thought, oh, God, how do I tell this guy at the Strand I got <laughs> a better offer, right? Oh, Lord. And I said, great, I'll take it, you know. And um, they said, great, you'll start on Monday. I said, great. So I'm thinking, how do I tell? So I call up the guy at the Strand and I said, I am really embarrassed. And I said, but I got a better offer this afternoon. And he said, good on you. He said, good luck to you. <laughs>
0: I said, oh my well, god. Thank
1: you so much. I could not go in that strand for a year. I was so <laughs> embarrassed. But that's how I started in advertising. And and advertising was great because it wasn't a year later before I was freelancing and eventually I was working for Chanel. And Chanel is really where I, where I really cut my teeth and wow, eventually, What were
0: you what were you doing?
1: I was doing advertising, you know, layout for magazine ads, I was doing commercials, and um, I really got my brother in the business, and doing commercials, you could make a lot, lot of money in commercials, eventually, I could work about eight weeks a year, and the rest of the year, I could just do my art, you had to be very, yeah, but it was good, it was really good. Oh my
0: god. So when you're doing this, are you now starting to move away from photography or was it equal amounts of photography um, and sculpture?
1: No, now I'm doing all sculpture. All sculpture. Yeah. And
0: were you starting to show?
1: No, not at all. I could see I was not nearly good enough. And I, so, and I, there was one curator. We'd gotten a loft two months in And with my brother and my husband, my brother and I, we divided it up and um, and that was a lot of work because it didn't have, you know, a kitchen. It didn't have walls, didn't even have heat at first. You know, we had to do all that work and that took a lot of time and a lot of work because, you know, I was also working full time and Lamar was working full time. And and um, it was that was those were the hardest, hardest years. Um, and then, um, then once I started to get more settled, there was a curator in the building and she came up and she said, you know, you're just not nearly good enough. And she said, go out, look at, look at the art, just keep working. Don't waste your time in going out and trying to get a gallery. You'll waste your time. And I, as I went out and looked at art, I could see I wasn't nearly good enough. And there were a lot of people in advertising that were artists. And as I began talking to them, I could see I didn't, I hadn't read enough. I hadn't seen enough films. So I really started educating myself. I, I didn't go to graduate school. And so I really had to work. And it took me 10 years working alone in my studio, you know, to really get the work up to par. And I every Saturday, I religiously went around to all the art galleries and I made notes on who was showing what the, what I thought of it I was really really and then every night every Sunday I was working in my studio and anytime I had off I was working it, it was and I would say to myself you know Half of me can go to bed. The other half has to stay up. It became like the military, you know, I, it was, these were the hardest years, the hardest, hardest years. And did
0: you have moments during, like, I mean, I know from your childhood stories, you, you clearly had drive and, you know, your mom instilled in you, like, you know, not to quit, right? Like your ideas are wonderful, but they could be more wonderful. So did you have moments of, of, Oh, I just can't do this. Like, or blocks or
1: anything? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Terrible depressions, awful depressions. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone does. Everyone does. But I I think, think especially
0: being in New York, too, where you have access to all of that. And like when that woman said that to you, the curator said that to you, um, did you find it? I mean, it sounds like she said it in a kind way. Did it? Did it feel like okay? I got I'm gonna put a fire under me, or did it feel like oh well? Then what's the point?
1: Nope, fire. Yeah, fire. I'm Irish, you know. <laughs> it's like, piss, don't piss me off, you know. And I, but did it also, piss you off? No, don't okay. piss me off. I know? know, but did it when she said that? Is that how you felt? Like, uh, you know, she she came up once a year for for seven eight years. And about the eighth or ninth year, I I thought, fuck you, you know, I'm gonna, I'm going out. And that was the year she finally said, you're ready. And I was like, yeah, you because know, I was like, if you don't say I'm ready, you're you're gonna never think I'm ready.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but I also had a group of artists, and this was really wonderful. Once she finally said I was ready, I had a group of artists that, um, and there were a, a lot of us that um, there were they really a number of us that we would go around um, and there were 12 of us that would go around to each other's studio on the first Monday of every month. And we were tough with each other. I mean, almost brutal. You know how when you go into an art show and you think, Oh, if only this artist would have done this, Mm -hmm. this work could have been really great. You can see it so clearly where you can't see it with your own work. Totally. Yeah. We promised each other we would go into each other's studio and say what we really thought. We promised each other we would do this. And so every Monday we would go to each other's studio and we would really say what we really thought. And it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. And I always vomited after they left. Always, uh, you know my good friend that would come, she knew I vomited afterwards. She'd always give me a pink vomit bag and say, go to it, Pita. And, um, and it it was really hard. And then I had another group that was bigger. There were about 25 of us and we met every two or three months and everybody was supposed to bring like a curator or a gallery person or a collector, or if you didn't have one of those, you could bring another artist, God forbid. Um, And you were supposed to bring your most recent slides. And they had like 20, 15 carousels going and they were projected onto walls onto buildings and the carousels were just going right and and you all these people were just and there was a uh, potluck all this food and it would go till two in the morning sometimes and it was just great because if you saw somebody's work you didn't know you'd be like hey that work looks really good and you trade numbers and all those people that i met during that time a lot of them are directors of museums now, or curators, wow. good places. And it was a great way to meet a lot of people and say, you know, I'd love to have you come to the studio, or they'd see your work and say, you know, I just saw your work. I'd be really interested in coming to your studio, you know. So it was a great way to meet a lot of people and not. Yeah, under you kind of made your pressure. own
0: grad school.
1: We yes, it was really wonderful. And I didn't have the money for grad school. Uh, and plus, I don't think I really wanted to go. I was, I, I, I'd had enough of people. Mm, I, I, I didn't love undergraduate school. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't love school, I guess, maybe. But when I taught it at SVA, I really, I, I, I really loved that. I well,
0: probably because you didn't love your experience so then you gave what you wish you'd had probably oh
1: yes you know I tried to teach him how to write grants I tried to oh, teach yes, them, you know everything how to deal with dealers I tried to teach them how to be in the world which I never got yeah know? that was
0: you just making it up as you went along what but yeah. these these groups these two groups was it um what was the balance like between men
1: and women it was pretty much 50-50. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I wanted, uh, and then I had a real feminine group where it was all women. Uh, and we would talk about the issues. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was hardcore. That was hardcore. Um, and when was this, like in the 80s? This was all in the 80s and went up to about 95, 95. And
0: so what kind of issues, like being a woman in the art world?
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and it was tough. Uh, And I hadn't even realized how tough it was. These were a lot of women that had been here a lot longer than I had. And I hadn't realized the walls that they had hit. And so it was like, whoa, I I hadn't even realized it. Hmm. Um, And so that yeah, that what a cool way to educate yourself, you know, just
0: coming at it from all these different angles, and, um, and you know that kind of, uh, I totally get the throwing up in a barf bag afterwards because yeah, you know was- when it is when it's something that you care about so much to hear something that you're maybe not ready to hear or that you didn't see is it's really hard. But
1: I mean, I assume it worked for you. It totally did because I thought after they left. And i vomited <laughs> and then i thought okay if it made me vomit it's really close to the bone i have to listen yeah. If it, if it didn't make me vomit then i'm then okay then what they said didn't make any difference to me but if it made me really nauseous and sick what they're saying to me really is important and i have to listen and so I have to, and I I recorded it. So then I would listen to the recordings and say, okay, listen to what they said. This is super important and really listen. And so that's important. I have to change something. I have to look at something, really look at this. Mm -hmm. And it made my work so much better. And these, and these were good artists. They were much better artists than I was, much better. And we went around twice for two years and I think everybody was exhausted. Mm. Everybody was exhausted. I don't think we could have done it another time. I don't think we would have ended up friends um, <laughs> too hard.
0: Well, you know, and the nice, the thing is when you, when that hard feedback is coming from people that you admire and trust,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and they say those things, like, you're absolutely right. Like there's, you have to listen. Sometimes you have to translate it so that you can understand it, you know, because that can also stop you. But if it's coming from people that you really, really trust, listening is the most important thing and not just shutting down and being defensive. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I think where it gets confusing is when you hear that from a teacher, like the teacher that told me to never paint again, I didn't trust him. I didn't love his art. You know, um, but because he was a teacher, I was like, okay, well, that's the truth. I should never paint again.
1: Oh, you the know, worst. so finding
0: those just, I'm just thinking like for the people that are listening, like, you know, find yourself, I think that this finding a group and doing these like self crits and stuff are, it's such a good idea. I've heard this from so many artists, like kind of making your own grad school or whatever. And if you trust these people, like, yeah, li- listen to it back and you really hear what they're saying. But if you're getting that feedback from somebody who doesn't matter to you, you have to toss it out.
1: Or if it's mean-spirited. Yes. If it's mean-spirited, which is what it sounds like was to you, don't listen. And sometimes people say things that are cruel, and you'll know the difference because it'll hit you in a different place, almost in your body. Women have a great sense and women are very lucky this way. And some men too. But you can almost feel it. It's almost like daggers.
0: Yeah. When
1: it hits you, you know, it's almost like if it hits you in your heart, you know it's almost mean-spirited.
0: Right. As opposed to actually trying to give you an insight into what you're doing. It's yes. just, it was just mean-
1: Yeah, you
0: said that much better than I did. I was getting going in circles there for a second. But yeah, it's it's such a fine balance. And I think with, I know for me, for sure, um, I have a really sensitive soul. And I think lots of artists do, right? So hearing that stuff is hard. Um, But if you want to push yourself and you want your whale stories to be better... Yes. You know, <laughs> you, you, you have to it. listen to Moby
1: Dick. I'm sorry. You, you just got You have to raise the bar. Like I was doing one show um, at uh, gallery La gallery. It was my first show. And I remember I thought, Oh, this work, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I can't see it. And so I called a friend, Kenji Fujita, whom I really trust. And I said, Can you come over and look at this? I'm supposed to show very soon, and I don't know. I just don't know. But I trust you. Would you come and tell me what you see? So he did. He came over. He looked at my work. He spent about an hour looking before he even said anything. And then he said to me, what is your relationship for this work to the wall? Because it was the first time I'd moved to the wall. And I said, I don't know. And he said, I would consider that first, Peter. And then he said, I'm thinking that maybe you should take a little bit more time with this work. And then he just started to discuss certain things. And it was so helpful, it was really helpful. He did it in such a tender way, in such a thoughtful way. And by the time he was finished, three hours later, and I was a pot of water on the floor, <laughs> I knew I had to wait and spend another year working on the work. It wasn't good enough, you know, and, but he did it in such a way. And I must have known because I called him and asked for his help and he gave it to me and I Mm -hmm. trusted him. And so those things, you know, I rather have been told by him than to go public with it and have it not be good work and then a year later it came out it was much stronger work much better work and so was it know, on the wall it was still on the wall but it was i cut everything Wait. to shreds when he left everything and i started all over again i started all over again but knowing that it would be much you know i with his you know, I recorded it all, I thought about it, cut the whole thing to shreds. I knew it was not good enough, yeah, and, which
0: is yeah, exactly why you called him
1: and yep, and then we I began again with that body of work behind me, and we began I began again, I say we, you know the the royal we, and <laughs> we began again, and that was good, it was good and um and it's good sometimes to cancel things and start again and and no, and I would always trust Kenji Fujita. He's a he's a great friend. He's got a great eye. He understands so much about the women and their you know um, their. He he studied uh, God. He did his masters in in women's art, and so wow. he understands a lot about um, the, the, where we come from, and so. Um, I, I really trust him he's a very old friend I've known him since the 80s so um, did
0: did you have to call the gallery and ask to postpone or did you have enough time
1: no I had to call and postpone wow um, and how,
0: were they fine with that or was it tricky
1: it it was tricky it was yeah. tricky it was my first show um, but, but that's you know, it's so you're right it's
0: so much better to do that than to go out in New York like you know people are going to see it. Yep.
1: And it's not a bank in Dayton. No, it's (laughs) not a bank in Dayton. And it's, and it's, you know, but I always think, you know, and, and Mary's who's the, who's the, the dealer there, who's the senior vice president of that gallery, you know, and I've always worked, I've been there for 25 years. She is completely understanding. She always gets it. She understands, you know, what artists go through, you know, she's, she studied art. So she, I think she, she's very, very sensitive. So she always, she understands. So she's, yeah, she's on our side.
0: Yeah. Which is why you've been there for 25
1: years, probably. Which is why I've been there. <laughs> years, <so.
0: laughs> I just had the same, um, although it was through texts, but because I'm in a tiny town in Canada, but my friend Daisy Patton is a, a painter and she paints these large scale um, um, sort of paints patterns and things over top of found photographs but she she mm. blows them up to um, life size mm. and sort of tells these stories of forgotten people anyway they're beautiful and I love them and um, so I've been working on these new pieces that are all like um, well they're See, this is why you and I are going to get into our hoarding conversation, because I've been hoarding like crazy. I, thrift shops are my favorite place in the world. And uh, and so I was work, I've was i been working on this stuff where I've always done collage with found images, but now it's becoming found stuff.
1: Yes, I've seen them. They're wonderful. Oh, oh, that's, oh, that's
0: good coming from you. Thank you. Because <laughs> yeah. what I did was I took a picture midway through the first one, and I sent it to Daisy. I, I sent her a text, and I said, is this stupid or awesome? <laughs> Oh no. because you know when you're like in it and you're yes. I was just I'd been looking at it for too long
1: yes yes I know what you mean but no they're really they they're so interesting coming from the collages you were doing and they're like the next big step out it's just great and oh, and I love all like the jewelry that you're putting in them and all the jewelry that you went and got I yeah. just think that's wonderful you know it's it's because that jewelry means so much to you. You know, when you used to play with your grandmother's things. Yeah. It's just, that's the stuff you need in there, you know, especially yeah. like the queen that looked like your grandmother and this stuff. is. Oh, you have listened great. to the podcast. Oh, honey, I tell you, <laughs> I know all about you. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that
0: is, I was saying to my husband the other day, this is the first, you know, I've been thinking for years and I have recurring dreams of like going through Um, boxes of jewelry and finding jewelry at the bottom of wells and all this. And I've never been able to figure out a way because I did do collage. So I was like cutting out pictures of gems and I was like, it's not enough. Like I could never, but in my head, because I didn't do sculpture in school, I, you know, but I spent all my spare time at thrift shops, why I couldn't marry them in my art Oh I had this God. like block that I wasn't allowed to do that because I was a 2d artist or, or, some, I don't know what it was. And then, um, during quarantine and you know, my dad passed away, like all these, like this sort of accumulation of all of these life events. I was just like, fuck it. I'm just going to yep. start gluing stuff onto yep. stuff. And I have been
1: having the best time. Good. Don't let anything stop you. Life is, but Short, what
0: I feel like I'm exactly like what, like listening to you is kind of making me want to cry a tiny bit because I feel like I'm at that moment where I'm like, it's not there yet. Like, I but that's okay, and I'm okay with that. Like, I the big one I did, I was like, I know that you know, in my mind, it's like, here it is, here it is, ta da. But I know, as just with all this experience with Jal's curator and talking to other artists, I know that that first piece is. Just the first experiment. I know that's not the piece that should be in a gallery. You
1: You just keep pushing it. You just keep pushing. It's your big breakthrough. Yeah. It's like your first big thing. How wonderful. Now just go wild. Lose your mind. That's what you have to do. Don't think about it. Just go wild. Don't even think better, not better, good, good enough. Forget about that. Just go.
0: Yeah. Just
1: be wo- just be wonderful with it. Just be wonderful with
0: it. See, I really brought you on here for a, like a therapy session. PETA, tell me what to do. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. you know, I, that's what I felt like when I found your work. I don't know how I haven't known about you for years and years. I I can't even remember how I found you the other day, but I went down the rabbit hole and I just was like reading about you and watching videos and looking at all of your work. And I oh. was just like this woman, like you're the peacock and the, just all the materials. And when I saw on that, um, SF MoMA video, when you said materials are my language, um, I, I teared up because Aww. that's how I feel right now. And it's like, I wish I lived in New York so that we could go and have a socially distanced coffee date because <laughs> oh. I just feel like, a kindred spirit, you know, I just feel, but you're all those years ahead of me, you've done all the work, you've done the experimenting and I feel like I'm just dipping my toe and it's so exciting to find you at this moment, you know?
1: Anytime you, you struggle with it, you just call me up. Don't, don't even think about it. You just, I was so excited to see that piece that you had done. I was like, yep, she's on her way. It's such a big breakthrough for you. Such Mm -hmm. a big breakthrough. It's it
0: so exciting like to be 47 and to have like the first really huge breakthrough is like, oh God, I hope I live to 100 because I got stuff to do.
1: You will live to be 100. <laughs> oh my God, are you kidding? I, I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. You've got so much to live. And, and you have such a sense of space and, and all the things that you're starting to put together. This is going to be wonderful. Just wonderful! I'm excited. Yeah. Well,
0: let's let's. um, I I really shouldn't turn this into a therapy session for me, but I will phone you one day and get and get your feedback on
1: stuff. Please do. Okay.
0: (laughs) But I want to talk about. I see. I could just. Your studio is probably like one of my dreams. I would love to sit amongst all of your stuff. Okay, let's talk about. Is your studio organized or does it look like the bomb went off?
1: No, no, no. You know, I'm military. (laughs) I have, I have, I do have 20,000 square feet and um, we have a lot of, uh, it's all pretty organized. Um, It has to be because we have so many materials. And so we have to be pretty organized. Um, It sometimes it gets a little disorganized in places, but we're pretty organized. Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: So how does it come together? Like, how, how did you get your first peacock?
1: Uh, the peacocks came, um, well, you know what happened with, with the birds? The birds came actually from Canada. Oh. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, I have a couple friends, uh, good friends that live in Canada, and they called me up and said, you know, we just passed this dumpster that has all these beautiful birds in it, these beautiful little birds. Do you want us to get them for you and bring them back to New York? And I said, yes. And so they started bringing them back in. Uh, and you know that it's illegal to bring those birds across the, um, the line. And this was before 9-11. And so they would put them in their sweaters, in their sleeves, in their pants. One girl acted like she was pregnant and had a number of them in her pouch. Oh, my God. And so they would bring it to me. They were beautiful beautiful birds and that's how i began with the birds and i just love them i just love them this was in like the 92 i think and um i just put them in the pieces because i thought they just you know because i used to do dead fish and i just thought these birds deserved a better send-off and thought they were so gorgeous and so i began to museums then started giving me them and then I, 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 you know, I read a tremendous amount and the, the books often feed me and um, uh, oh, her name just flipped, flipped it out of my head, but, um, oh gosh, I can't remember her name. Oh, anyway, um, one of the women that I read so much, she loved peacocks and, um, and she used to have them on the on the roof of her of her building, and eating all the uh, the the um, the peaches on her tree, and I loved 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 that. So I started. I decided to get some peacocks. And um, there's another young woman who actually does all the taxidermy. And so I began to just. I love love peacocks, and I have right now um, about. Uh, 12 peacocks ready to go oh and so the right piece comes along the peacocks will be there and right I just so kind of- that was
0: like kind of a happy act it wasn't you're like you were like oh I need birds for this piece I'm working on it was like a happy accident like here's these birds do you want them sure I'll figure out what to do after
1: exactly,
0: exactly. and so what do you think do you how Cause people always ask me that with collage, like, do you go out looking for a picture of this or do you just find it in a book? So do you, is it, what's the percentage? Are you like, I need fake flowers or is it, you know, or is it like, you know, people come to you and go, Hey, I have this stuff. Do you want it?
1: Mostly I trip over it. Mostly yeah. I trip over it. It's not usually, I, it's rare. I go out finding it. I mean there was one dealer who really wanted me to do bronze casting and so I went out and looked at a foundry. And um, that's where I'd found the black sand. We walked in, I saw all this black sand. It was beautiful all over the walls of this place. And we walked in, I said, oh, it's so beautiful. And he said, I knew you'd like it. I said, no, not the bronze. Look at the, look at the walls of black sand. He said, you are hopeless. And so I, that's where I found the black sand. You know so a lot of it I trip over you know just what happens to be it's so beautiful so oh, I and, love
0: that yeah. well that's a good segue in black and peacocks um so I, I posted that piece the other day of the chandelier with the peacock on it and then your comment on it uh, about uh, about what that piece is about about your father can you tell that story because it was just got oh. me
1: Yes, my father, you know, I just adored my father. My father was just the world to me. And towards the end of his life, he got um, uh, Louis bodies, which uh, is like an Alzheimer's. And he went more and more into his body. And although I could see that he could understand me um, and his eyes would move and he would hold my hand and, and, I could see how frustrated he was that he couldn't communicate. And it, it would go deeper and deeper. And, and uh, the more I would touch him, the more um, I could see his, his sadness that he couldn't talk. Mm-hmm. And um, he stayed alive mostly because his pension in the military, although he, was, he, he did his pension so that he would get 70%, and when he died, my mother would get 40%. But um, President Bush changed that so that after World War II vets would, after they died, the wives would only get, I think, 10%. Um, And My father realized this, and he was really, really mad, but there were so few World War II vets left, and he knew that they wouldn't protest. And, um, and he was just so upset. So he stayed alive as long as he could to, to keep my mother in, in, the, in the lap of luxury of how she was used to living. Mm-hmm. And um, so at one point, though, he was in so much pain and so much misery. And so I built this piece with the peacock on top. And the peacocks are known in Ireland, and they're allowed to run free in the cemeteries because the peacocks, supposedly from old lore, uh, take the souls to heaven. So they're allowed to just move and run free in the cemetery, and I thought that was so beautiful. And then this piece has all the tassels, and the tassels, you know, are put on the, on the, on the hearse that take the bodies to the cemetery and then I made blue, had all these glass bulbs blown that were the color of his eyes, and his eyes had two shades. It was a little darker blue when he was inside and a really brilliant blue when he was outside. So I did that, but I had them covered in wax because they were covered more and more because as he went more and more into his body, I just felt like he was going more and more into that shell of himself. And so finally, I told him, listen, Bob, when the, when the good Lord comes for you, you go ahead and go. You don't wait any longer. Oh, there's enough money for mother to be taken care of. And there's no worries for you. You just, when he comes, you go. And that night, my father left. And wow. um, it was really such a, a blessing, I thought.
0: Oh, my gosh. see Mm -hmm. and I already as I said I love that piece already and then when things like that are infused into your work like I I always say I think that's a superpower for artists you know like to have an outlet yes to be able to express all of those things that could potentially eat you up you know as a daughter losing her dad that way for you to have a way to honor him and express all of the things you were seeing and feeling is amazing.
1: Yes, we have that. Aren't we lucky? Yeah. Aren't we lucky? Or poets or writers yeah. or dancers or I've, I i don't know what people do that don't have that access. I, I feel so bad for them.
0: Well, you know, when I didn't, I quit making art for about 15 years because of that teacher saying you should never paint again. And so for 15 years, I worked in advertising and didn't make anything. And, um, I would get so, um, irritated. Like, so? like I had no outlet yeah. and it was, uh, it was, so stifling. And I remember when, when my son was born and I was, you know, suddenly not working anymore and I was home with him and, you know, overwhelmed by being a mom and all these different things. I was like, I need to make stuff again. Like I can't, I just felt like I was going to explode. You know, if I didn't, I needed an outlet to express, you know, I did a whole series called type a mama and it was about (laughs) me trying to like figure out how to be like a creative director and a mother when you cannot creative direct a one-year-old. And it was such a, like, and no one ever saw that work and I'm sure, you know, it's not very good, but for me it was therapy. It was just like, ah, there. I was able to get it out in a way that worked for me, you know?
1: Yes, yes. You should make a piece about how you feel about that teacher. <laughs> I know. I mean, it, it would just mm. like, or all the years that you lost. I mean, you have to, you have to, I don't know. I Irish, you know, just like, they dig for potatoes till they just like die. You know, they're just... <laughs> We're we're like oh just put up a wall in front of us we'll just walk right through you know we're we're real pissy which <laughs> a, is a is a good and a bad thing but it's a, you know try to use it as good but yeah sorry that happened to you. But now don't let a day go by without doing something wonderful. And I think you do. I think you. Yeah, no. And I I
0: joke, you know, I joke all the time that I'm going to dedicate a book to him or something, because if it weren't for that experience, um, you know, I let it stop me for a long time. But it was also the fire beneath starting Jealous Curator, writing all these books, like, that was the fuel. Because once I started talking about it like I didn't tell anyone that story for years I was mortified Uh, I was so embarrassed and um I thought I was the only one that had ever been told to stop making (laughs) stop making art and then when you talk to people it's like oh this is ridiculously common and even the greats who I admire so much have these stories too and it's like oh okay well you know I I always tell the story of um when I wrote my first book creative block there's um an artist in um Toronto, that's in the book, and her name's Amanda Happe, and one of the questions I had asked was, you know, how do you deal with negative criticism? And I'm sorry for all the listeners, I know I've told the story a million times, but I think it's an important one. She, I said, how do you deal with negative criticism? And she said, the great thing is, you don't have to care. She said, no one can wrestle the pencil out of your hand, you get to keep going in absolute defiance. Oh. And when I read that quote, because it was an email interview, when I read that, I I probably cried for an hour because it was almost 20 years after the university experience. And I realized for the first time that it was me that put the pencil down. He told oh. me to, but I didn't have to, it was me that put it down and I should have picked it up the next day. And I didn't. So I always, you know, if, if, if I could learn anything from all of this, it's that. So I always say, especially when I talk to students or you know kids or whatever, I always say, no matter what it is, art related, anything, somebody tells you to stop that's their opinion. You can pick up the pencil the next day. You can put the soccer cleats back on the next day. You can, you know, start working on your rocket again, the next day, whatever it is, it's your responsibility to pick up the pencil, not theirs. Yeah. And that's what I've learned. And it's been, it's been a priceless lesson for me and hopefully it's helped other people, but that's what keeps me going every day. It's just like, no, it's my job to pick up the pencil.
1: Oh my God. That's so good. I'm so glad that it's it and you know, it's hard. When you're that young, you're just so vulnerable and you yeah. believe, you know, you think, Oh my god, they know. They know. Yeah. Well
0: they're grown ups, you know. Of course, of <laughs> course. Um speaking of teaching and good teachers, so when when in all of this did you start teaching and are you still teaching now?
1: Oh, um I I taught for a long time. I taught um oh gosh, it must have been nineteen I guess it was Nineteen eighty till um, I don't know t- uh, till till twenty twenty ten or twenty fifteen somewhere wow. around. Wow! And, and I, where were you teaching? I, I only at um, SVA grad school, and only because it was such a good job. It was such a good job. They only required that you go four hours a week, and that <laughs> was it. And they gave you health benefits, and they gave you a nice and it was so lovely. All you you didn't have to give any plans, you didn't have to go any meetings, nothing. And you could miss as many classes as you want. You just have to find a find a replacement. And and you all you do is you go in and you talk to students. It was wonderful. And <laughs> so, like, who didn't love that? So, like, you know, and I had the best students and i what i wanted to do was to give them what just exactly what you said give them what i didn't have and um you know teach them how to write um grants because that was the one thing i lived on grants for eight years you know i just applied for everything and i was it was like the military for me you know just uh, apply 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 you know like the strand till they give it to you and they tell each other sick of seeing you and but then you um, don't
0: call them the next day and give back the money. You keep the money
1: that yeah, I do yeah. keep the money. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so, and so, and we would apply for grants in the class and then the minute they graduated, they would apply for them and always one person in every class got it. Um, you know, and we would, um, we would talk about galleries and how, how, what's the best way to approach them how do you how do you do you have uh, how do you do it with the photography how do you do it you know mm. we would just demystify like practical yeah practical things everything and then we would break up the class into half so i could spend an hour with each student every other week and we would have talks about anything they wanted to talk about i was up for You know, there was just nothing hidden. I didn't want anything to be hidden. You know, whatever they wanted to do, I was up for. And so it was really a good, good class. And, um, and then we would go up to the Met and I had them lecture, had them lecture on a piece in the, in the Met that revealed their work. And um, that was always really good. And um, how many people were in each class? I requested only eight because my classes were really hard. They had to really work, but I always ended up with the max in my class. They always gave me 12 because uh, there was, you know, everybody wanted to be in my class. It was always a waiting list for my class because, you know, of the class was like we were doing grants and all the rest. Yeah. Of so, I want to be in your class. <laughs> you don't need my class you're doing just great you can call me anytime about anything Um, but I think the grants and all the rest of that stuff were really helpful too well
0: yeah that's that I remember like I, I didn't do a master's but in my undergrad I remember asking like in the January before we graduated in May so here we are at the very end and I was like put up my hand and said so what do we do when we graduate
1: I asked that same question. And And what was the answer? Everyone was like, well. Grad school? They didn't even tell. They told me I wasn't good enough for grad school.
0: Oh, my God.
1: They told me I wasn't good enough for grad school. And you know what they gave me when I graduated? I graduated a little earlier than my classmates. I graduated in December because I went in the summer. Mm -hmm. And my classmates gave me a gift. They had a party for me and everything. They gave me a gift. You'll never believe what they gave me because I was gonna get married, right? And I was getting married in January. I was leaving in December. Do you know what they gave me? I'm scared. Diapers and perfume. (gasps) I was so insulted. I was, because they said you're gonna have lots of babies and you're gonna need perfume to keep all the smell of the diapers off you. So your husband will stay with you. Oh my God and i was so insulted that they thought that i was not even worthy of an being an artist that i because i was getting married that that that's what i was going to do just be a baby machine and i was i remember leaving the party i left soon after they partied on and i remember don't cry don't cry don't cry walking down these steps don't cry till you're in your car do not do not do not do that pita and i remember getting in my car and tears just coming to i thought they don't even think i'm a, an artist they just think i'm a baby machine i thought fuck all of them i will yeah. show them i'll show them that's the irish in me <laughs> fuck them.
0: yeah that's how i felt in that critique same, that's why I didn't defend myself in that critique when they said you should never paint again because everyone was attacking me. And I, I remember thinking, if I open my mouth, I'm going to cry. Yeah. And there's no way in hell I'm crying in front of these people.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know?
0: But um, look at me now. My husband keeps saying, I wonder if they'll ever give you a doctorate for your work in the arts from that university. I was like, ooh, I've already got the speech planned.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they, did, but, they did do that for me. They called me back and gave me some doctorate thing no yes oh my god
0: peter that is my that is my revenge dream (laughs) you need to make a piece out of diapers and perfume
1: oh i never thought of that but there you go maybe (laughs) that's what i should do but (laughs) oh my
0: gosh that's amazing well speaking of going to the met uh your art is there i was looking at your list of all the places where your work has been and shown and it is insane
1: Oh, Thank you. Thank you. Okay.
0: So MoMA, the Met, Guggenheim, Whitney, like, and that Brooklyn Museum, San Francisco MoMA, like that's just like a little smattering. So when that stuff started happening to this girl with the diapers and the perfume who was never supposed to be an artist and Were you when all when things like that happen when when your work is shown there? Do you are you pinching yourself or are you like damn right?
1: No, I was I was pinching myself. I was so pleased, but but I was I was working really hard because I was doing all of a sudden it happened really fast. You know uh, because I I hadn't been showing it all and then all of a sudden I'm showing everywhere. And
0: so how did that happen?
1: Um, uh, you know, I, I, they said, um, I started showing in 83. That was my first at all show in New York. And, um, and I remember I was down art on the beach and I remember I was working on my piece and someone came down and came up to me and was telling me about my piece. And I said, how do you know that? And they said, well, you have a big spread in the New York times today. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. And see, I don't even know to look in the New York times, you know, that was my first big thing. I was like, wow. Okay. So, (laughs) but by, and that was the first thing I did. And so I was very lucky, but in 87, I was just doing show after show after show. And I was really, and so 87 was the Whitney. That's right. And that was a, a group show and, but it was a big installation. And, um, and the Brooklyn Museum purchased a piece. Um, and so that was my first really big museum piece that was purchased by someone, which I was thrilled about. Yeah. And, um, and then the Brooklyn Museum um, wanted to do a show and they had already wanted to do a show before the Whitney Museum had asked me. And so I did a big grand lobby project um, that was by Charlotta Cotique. And the Speed Museum acquired the whole thing, which was grand. And wow. um, um, so that was wonderful. And then in '94, MoMA uh, came to a show I had and wanted to purchase this one particular piece. And I was so excited. And the dealer said, You know, it just, it, this is the first day. And he s- said, Toby Lewis just bought that piece. And she's a really important collector. And I said, Would she buy another piece instead? And he said, You can't do that, PETA. And I said, Well, could we ask her? And he said, You can't do that. And I said, Well, could you give me her number? I'll ask her. And he said, You can't do that, PETA. And I said, Give me the number, I'll call her. And he said, Here's the number. And so I called her up and I said, Toby, I said, I understand you're from Cleveland, Ohio. And I said, I'm from Dayton, Ohio. And I said, I understand you bought that big piece. And I said, I'm so thrilled. But I want to just let you know that MoMA is there. And they really, really would like to buy that piece. Would you mind terribly accessioning it to MoMA? And what I'll do is I will come to your progressive, which is where she was buying the piece for. And I will fly out there on my own money. I will look at the space and I will build you a piece just for that space. Would you consider that? I don't want to hurt your feelings, but would you consider that? And she was so lovely. She said, MoMA is very, very important for an emerging artist. I will absolutely do that. I said, Oh, Toby, you're from heaven. Thank you, I will buy a ticket. When would you like me to come? She goes, you're not buying the ticket. I will buy the ticket and we'll make this happen. So then when I, so she was so kind, released it to MoMA. So then I fly out there to meet Toby Lewis. I walk into this piece, into this space, it's huge. I mean, it's huge. And I say, Toby, Toby, this place is huge you need seven or eight pieces here. I said, one piece is going to look like a dinky little piece. You need seven or eight pieces. And she said, oh, Pita, she said, I can't afford seven or eight pieces. I said, Toby, you need seven or eight pieces. I don't know what you can afford, but you need seven or eight pieces here. She said, I can't afford them. I said, listen, what I'll do is I'll make you seven or eight pieces. And if you want them, you can buy them if you don't want them you don't have to buy them right and she goes okay it's a deal and so i went back and i told the dealer he's like dying he's like you can't do that you have to get it on writing she has to put a down payment i said forget it she doesn't want them i'm just i'm just making them be-. and she doesn't even want them and he's like oh my god what kind of artists are you <laughs> And
0: then you told them the strand story.
1: <laughs> and no, I didn't tell them the strand story. So I make seven or eight pieces, and she said they have to be colored. They have to be of color, right? And I'm like, color. And I'm thinking, oh, color. I hate color. It has to be black or white, right? I hate color. And she goes, color. Got to be color, Peta. And I'm like, oh, yuck. So I go to Mexico, thinking all the color down there it'll inspire me, you know. I come home and I'm doing all this color, you know, and it looks horrible i mean horrible if you want horrible you got horrible it looks it looks like and then i tried to do soft pastels oh even worse it looks like monet you know but even worse monet oh god so i i can't stand it so i cover everything with buckets and buckets of white wax everything and i'm so exhausted because i've worked now 16 hours in a row i just lay down on moving blankets you know and fall asleep and i must have rolled in the middle of the night and i rolled under a piece right and i wake up and there's all this color underneath the piece but if you roll the other way and you look at it straight on it's white but underneath it's like hot pink or bright yellow or like all these like wild colors but on top it's pure white right and at Toby's place it's like if you walk down the stairs and you look up it's like looking under someone's petticoats right but oh if you look God. at it straight it's like white right and so i'm thinking oh this will be so great you know it'll be wonderful she can't resist this right so i invite her over to this place it's a really cold place there's no heat it's winter and she, i said wear a big fur you know cuz it's <laughs> cold you know so she comes over she got a big coat on and so i said now And she said, they're all white, Pete. I said, no, 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 no. So lay down. I've got this red blanket down so she's going to lay. So I put her on this blanket and I'm pulling her underneath all these pieces, right? Like a little kid, right? And it's like red and yellow and all these colors underneath. And she's laughing and she's having so much fun. She's going, this is wonderful. And I'm pulling her under. I said, isn't this great? And it'll be all underneath. And as they Because it's three stories tall. You're on one story, you go down, and then you go down, and you go down. And I said, it'll be so wonderful, because as people look up, they see all this color. But as they're walking down, they only see white until they look up, right? And so she said, well, I have to have all of them. And I said, well, I just knew you would. And so she takes all of them, right? And so it's the biggest installation I ever did. Oh, my God.
0: But you can't do that. I mean? like that. That's the, that, oh, that's the his dealer. go-to. You can't, you're breaking the rules. Oh yeah. Watch this. I'm going to drag her around on a blanket. Can you do that? <laughs> I don't think you're supposed to do that with collectors either, Peta.
1: I know she was so <laughs> sweet. She's just like the best, the best, the best. Toby Lewis is oh my wonderful. God.
0: Have you ever written a book?
1: Oh no. I would, lo- I would love to have a big book made written. No, but
0: you have to put your stories in it too.
1: Oh, I would. I you are would.
0: such a good storyteller. I feel like I oh. need popcorn. it's just like, I can <laughs>
1: listen to these all day. <laughs> you're so sweet. Well, that's because you're so sweet and listen to everything. You're so dear. You're so oh. dear. That's why. See,
0: I knew we were going to be best friends at the end of this.
1: I knew, I it. knew it. I knew it. Well, um,
0: gosh. So is there
1: anything that you
0: want that's coming up that people should know about or, you know, anything like that?
1: We have four big shows coming up. Um, we have uh, we have Nancy Littlejohn Gallery in Texas. That'll be our first show, and that's supposed to be um, in spring of okay. 21. And then in December, January of 21-22 is Taiwan at the New wow. New Hung Gallery, and um, and then in 22 we have two big shows. Um, at the Chazen Museum of Art in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, with the director, Amy Gilman. And she's doing a wonderful thing. You know, all these writers that inspire me and everything. I just love it. I'm mostly Japanese writers and also all these Southern writers. She's going to, uh, it's going to be a traveling show. And what she's going to do is get all, involve all the um, uh, on campus. She's gonna involve all the Japanese um uh mm. Like literature, invo- uh, literature students and then wow. the Japanese students and get them all involved. So, to be much, much bigger than just the, the fine artists, you know? And so, I'm really excited about that to find out because they read all these books and then bring them involved with the work that's been so inspired by these writers. Yeah. And, and so, that's going to be so exciting for me because this is where the work all begins, right? And then yeah, the last show. Full circle. It'll be so great, so great. And I'm so excited that Amy's gonna do that. And then the last show that we're gonna do is at the um, PAFA, which is the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. And that's the first museum and oldest art museum in the United States. It was built in 1805. Wow. And we're going to do a, um, a large installation there involved with the building and we're going to do something really unusual for us. And so we're planning it now and really going to, I'm going to send you pictures because I think it's going to be something really intense and very, very different for us. So I'm excited about that. So so exciting. Yeah, it's really going to be thrilling two years. So We're working very hard, and I only have one assistant, so it's hard.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's so exciting. I'm so glad that um, your team suggested you get on Instagram because now we can actually watch what you're doing.
1: Oh, thank you. (laughs) You're so good. Uh, and i'm going to be watching you i am so into what you're doing and i'm so thrilled that you are that you are going to do sculpture i'm sure you're going to become a full-fledged sculpture i can see it happening you you have put your toe in and now you're just going to jump in please and if you don't you're going to get a call from me
0: (laughs) i know i totally feel like that's where it's going and um but uh, you know and i've been feeling a little bit blocked lately and this i'm like As soon as we hang up, I'm going to the studio. Well, no, I'm going to make more coffee. Then I'm going to the studio and I more
1: coffee and the studio. Yeah, doesn't that sound like a good day? That sounds like so much fun. And and make sure uh, you make sure Greg makes you do that.
0: Yeah, he will. He's really good. I said to him the other day, I I was getting like that 36 inch panel is the biggest I've gone since university.
1: Oh, because I
0: used to paint on six foot by six foot canvases and. There's a lot of you know leftover PTSD from comments about my big pieces. And so I've never gone big again. I've always stayed really small. And then, so the other day i got all these panels and then I was second guessing everything because I was like, ah, oh, the panels alone are expensive. Then I'm not just using cut out old books that cost 25 cents, I, like all this stuff is adding up and it's expensive and I don't have a show for it and I don't have buyers lined up and oh God, oh God, oh God. Um, and Greg was like, what would the jealous curator say about this?
1: <laughs> he yes. Said, if yes. someone
0: emailed you and said all of those things what would you say I would say just go do it. He's yes. like okay so off you go and he'll send me downstairs and he'll take care of dinner or whatever and I can work till midnight or whatever and that's what I need to be doing.
1: Yes, yes. Just put up a little sign in your room that says life is too short. Yeah. And money is a tool. Money is a tool. Don't yeah. That's all there is to it. Money means nothing. Money means nothing. It totally does. It just doesn't mean anything. Yeah. You can, we have way too much money. You can skimp on so many things. You know that. That's true. Put it into your work. Take it and put everything into your work.
0: Yeah. I made some money from a show that I just had and um, I spent all of the <laughs> profit on new supplies. Good. And I've never done that before. I've never like made money at a show and then had other work ongoing. Like, so I'm finally in that cycle. I've always dreamed of being in where the money oh. goes back into the work and it's just started to happen for me. And it's, you know, what, 20 something years after art school, but it's happening and it feels exciting and scary and, but more exciting, you know, it's, I'm, I'm ready. I'm so ready.
1: Oh, I'm so thrilled for you. I really am. That's so, so wonderful. But that's why I had
0: to talk to you. I knew I knew I needed this, you know.
1: And And I wanted to
0: tell everyone your stories because I knew you with that comment that you left about the peacock piece. I was like, I know she's gonna be a good interview. She's gonna have stories.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And just remember, there'll be good years. And there'll be bad years, and it just doesn't matter because that's how it is. It goes up, it goes down. it goes up, it goes down. It doesn't matter. It yeah. just doesn't matter. All that matters is your work. And just remember when it goes down, that gives you time to work. when it goes up, it goes so speedy and right. it goes down. and so that's all that matters. and just and then you then when it goes down, you have time for your girlfriends and and talking a little bit and settling stuff and and you've got such a good base, such a good base. And you've got such a good eye. So just keep at that, okay? And okay, remember deal. That, all right? You, you might get any- some
0: emails late at yes, night.
1: <laughs> any trouble that you have, you call me, okay? Okay, deal. I mean it, I mean it, okay? Yes. All right. All right. So lovely, lovely talking to you. You
0: too. Thank you so much. And you go and have an amazing day. I cannot wait to see all of these shows come together. I will be watching and, uh, you know, with bated breath to see what these crazy things are going to be. And uh, I am hanging up and going to my studio right now.
1: At a girl. At a girl. Okay. <laughs> okay. You take good care.
0: You too. Thank you, Peter, so, so much.
1: All right, sweet pea. Okay. See you soon. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: I cannot even begin to explain the fire lit under me after this conversation, and then it got better. So here's the life-changing part I mentioned off the top. After our conversation, PETA messaged me and asked if we could book a call twice a month so that she could check in on me and my work. Um, yes she also asked if I could commit to being in the studio for five hours a day at least five days a week again I said yes I could do that and I have you guys I really have even on the days when I wasn't sure what I was going to do in there well we have our first call coming up in a few days and I am so excited and kind of nervous to show her where I am I really am more excited because as you can tell from listening to this episode she is at her core a generous nurturing teacher and I want to learn. The nervous part (laughs) comes from allowing myself to be vulnerable enough to let this artist I admire so much give me feedback. The last time I let a teacher give me quote-unquote feedback it did not go so well as I am sure you have heard me mention in the past. But this is not that. So I'm going to push past my insecurities so that I can get to the work that I want to be making. And if an icon like Peter Coyne wants to help me, well then who the hell am I to say no? Okay, I will keep you posted on this unbelievable opportunity. But back to this episode. All of the images and links that Peta and I talked about are over on my site right now, thejealouscurator.com, so pop over and take a look. Thanks so much to Peta for, well, everything, and of course, thanks to you for listening. There will be more art for your ear next weekend. See you then!